Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show, I view myself as an alien who is dropped on this planet, and I'm trying to figure out what is going on. Pacifica host Garland Nixon down the rabbit hole of the U.S. Empire. Hello, Garland Nixon here, and uh, poor old Joe Biden. I'm not sure that guy has any clue whether or not he's even uh, on this earth anymore. I don't think he knows what planet he's on. But uh, the U.S. empire is in deep and serious trouble. Let's talk. Hello, Garland here, and uh, let's talk about what's going on. Man, it's interesting. You know, we are in really, really interesting times. And I don't mean just interesting times like from a 10-year, 40-year, 50-year, 100-year um, period. We're in interesting times for the overall development of humankind on this earth. Here's what I mean. Look, historically, um, there have been empires, right? I, I've told you, you know, as far as I'm concerned, if I view myself as a an alien who was dropped on this planet and I'm trying to figure out what's going on, I would not be impressed, to say the least. I'd look at human beings and I'd say, we just got a bunch of warring tribes. You know, they've got uh, a, a first century mentality and a 21st century weaponry. Right. So I'd look at them and I'd say they haven't gone anywhere. They, they haven't. I mean, human beings are a pathetic group. If you look at them as a group, the kind of stuff that people can be convinced of is pretty horrifying as a group. Right. And I'm like, yeah, I ain't impressed by humans. OK, I'm getting the hell off this planet. These, this 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 ideology, this this type of uh, uh, thinking that these poor primitive creatures are involved in cannot be allowed to spread to other planets. That's what I'm thinking as an alien, right? I just blow this planet, man. If you kidding me, it'll destroy the whole universe if people start thinking like these, these, these schmucks, right? Particularly in the United States. I think we got some other areas of the world that got a chance. But the U.S. empire is a twist, sick and twisted um, mentality, right? But at any rate, so let's look at where we are here. I can name empire after empire, right? The Greco-Roman Empire and, you know, the, the, the Ottoman Empire and on and on and on. And they've collapsed. But what we're into now is a situation where we have the, the first collapse of what? Of a, yeah, the first collapse of a nuclear armed empire. Now, people would argue, no, the Soviet Union was the first collapse of, an, of a nuclear armed empire. And then I would ask you this, did the Soviet Union have bases all over the world? The imperialism of the Soviet Union was an entirely, entirely different dynamic in that it was mostly in its own sphere, right? It had a bunch of countries that it had reached out and grabbed up and sucked in, mainly because it had been attacked through these countries so many times, right? Number one. Number two, most of the work that was done by the Soviet Union around the world, let's take Africa, for, for instance, what did they do? They were arming and aiding countries that were fighting against U.S. imperialism, right? They were actually fighting. I mean, let's not, you know, uh, pretend it's something other than it was. The U.S. empire or the British empire was overthrowing countries, was were oppressing countries, and the Soviet Union was arming these countries that were fighting wars of liberation. I mean, that's just a reality. I'd like to somebody to come to me and say, no, that's not true. And as we heard from President Vladimir Putin, they reached out a couple times. Hey, guys, can we be friends? No. Hey, guys, can we uh, make some kind of a No. Can we work things out? No. No. In the, in the same way that a sheep can't work things out with the wolf. It is the nature of a wolf to want to eat sheep. That's what a wolf is. And if the sheep says, can we work out a deal? The wolf's going to say, sure. The deal is I eat you. That's the deal they tried to work out with the wolves in, in the U.S. empire. And they found out the hard way. No, that's never going to happen. Now, what do we have now? So we have a a... To say that the Soviet Union was an empire is a nuanced philosophical discussion. I would argue that it wasn't an imperialist. It wasn't an imperialist uh, venture. Okay. Whether you like it, don't like it, or whatever, I would argue it's hard to express that it was an imperialist venture, particularly when it was fighting against the um, imperialist powers of the time. All right. So we move forward. So the first imperialist, I mean, true malevolent and malicious empire, right? International empire, the U.S. empire, 850 bases around the world, maybe more, probably more, lots of hidden bases, overthrowing countries nonstop, over, you know, rapacious 
um, violent uh, uh, business practices, robbing and stealing of resources from one end of this world to the other. So they collapse and they're nuclear armed. And so we're watching the first true malicious, malevolent nuclear armed empire collapse. Because this is not a chapter 11 going out of business. They're trying to put their foot on the gas. When As they start, it's like a company going out of business. What are you going to do? We're going to have big sales. We're going to do this. Well, you're out of business. You can't make money anymore. You Your your profit margin is not, uh, you can't create a, a, any dynamic in which you can make a profit. And you just say, we're going to go uh, a full steam ahead with this business. Eh, it's going to collapse even harder. You know, if there's a brick wall in front of you, what, are you going to hit the brakes? No, I'm going to mash on the gas. And that's what the U.S. empire is doing. And we're watching this in real time. This has never happened before a nuclear armed empire. So the question is, how does mankind get out from under that? How does mankind survive a nuclear armed empire that is spiraling down, crashing? Because it's so freaking obvious to those of us who are not ignored by this craziness that this is just a, a, a situation where this thing is spiraling out of control and it's collapsed. It's spiraling, not out of control. It, it, it's going to hit the ground hard. So we look at it and uh, in real time, we get to see the collapse of an empire. Aren't we just lucky? I mean, you're going to live through something or die. We're all going to live. We're all going to die a thousand years from now. A million years from now, we will all have been dead for a million years. So in reality, what difference does it make? For those of us, we're like, oh, my God, I'm scared. Don't never be scared to die. You can walk outside right now and slip on a pavement and break your neck. Live your life. Enjoy your, your life and look at the things through a historical context and say, wow, this is interesting. Truly interesting times indeed. Start here. Joe Biden, the guy who is ostensibly running the empire, right? So one of the things, there's a great book that I advise people to see called How to Hide an Empire. Well, one of the interesting things about the U.S. empire is that it has has only been able to survive by hiding from its constituents, from its citizens, that it is an empire. Instead of saying we are an empire, we're going to go around the world, we're going to steer, steal people's stuff, we're going to overthrow countries, we're going to occupy countries, we're going to pretend like we have allies, but we don't have really allies, we'll attack them if we need. Instead of telling the truth, they say to their people, they give them a whole different scenario. We're the good guys. We're going around the world to help people, to do good things, stand up for human rights, blah, blah, blah. So we have an empire that has to maintain a false image to its constituents in order to be able to continue doing the horrible, malevolent things that it does. The only way it can do it is if the people at home don't know it. It's like a serial killer. I remember the BTK killer, that this guy has a family and he has to hide that he's a serial killer. That's the U.S. empire. The only way the U.S. empire could continue on is to create an illusion amongst its constituents, amongst its citizens at least, that it is A, acting in on the behalf of good, right? And B, that they had a democracy that was representing them and looking out for their best interest, when in fact, they don't have that at all. When in fact, the U.S. government, the U.S. empire despises the American people. The working class hates them, can't stand them. The ruling class has no goodwill whatsoever towards its constituents. It's just going to lie to them and say, as long as you do what you're told, keep your mouth shut. And when I tell you to go die on a battlefield, you go die on a battlefield, you're okay. If you start saying things that I don't like, I'm going to try to throw you in jail, Julian Assange. Uh, I'm going to try to attack you and uh, set you up for, uh, you know, whatever kind of, you know, FBI infiltrated uh, perpetration that I can do. And then say you tried to overthrow the government or you're doing bad things. You tried to kidnap the governor of X amount of state, whatever. If you remember the Haitian guys and the Muslim guys that they tried to set up and say the FBI came in, tried to convince them to like blow things up and do terrorist attacks and then said, hey, we caught some terrorists. So, you know, they try to they got to do these kinds of games, these internal games to keep the keep everything going to maintain the fiction that they're in the world to do good and that you have a government that is democratically selected by you. And therefore, because those two things that go together, you select the government and therefore the government looks out for you. And there are people that are suspicious now that neither is true. OK, so all of this is going on. And now the problem they have, we start with Biden, is that people, when you understand the dynamics that created and that maintained the fiction that Joe Biden is the leader and the president of this empire and he knows what the hell he's doing, once you start to understand that, they got big problems because their whole, their lives start to fall apart. We look at what happened recently. 
regardless of what you say, you know, the, the Biden administration is upset. Why? Because there was a report that stated the glaringly obvious uh, fact that Joe Biden is mentally incompetent, that he is freaking brain dead, right? So this uh, uh, it's written and it's like basically, well, we can't charge this guy with a crime because he, he, he can't really, he's non-compassmentous. He can't really go to court and stand for himself. The jury will just hang their head in pity and say, come on, really, you're charging this guy. You know what I mean? It's like you come to court and the, you know, a police officer comes to court and some guy comes limping in there and he's, you know, sick and, you know, he's got, a, he's blind, he's got a service dog, he's a handicapped and all. And they're like, what'd you charge this guy with? Oh, we charged him with, uh, you know, something minor, spitting on the sidewalk. And everybody in the court and jury is going to go, really? This poor bastard, He's he's got a freaking service dog. He's in a wheelchair and you charge him with spitting on the sidewalk? Really? The cop is going to be like leaving shame and humiliation. The whole world will say, come on, man, let this guy's got bigger problems. Don't you have somebody to go arrest for actually doing a crime than this poor bastard? Even if the guy's a jerk, they're going to say, yeah, but he, come on, we, you're not going to convince a jury to convict this guy. And that's basically what they said about Biden. That Joe Biden will come stumbling in the court, confused, looking, you know, weak. He can't, uh, look. If they think about this, if they say to buy jokes, they say, okay, well, the defendant uh, approached the stand, right? Somebody's going to have to grab his arm. He can't, I mean, can he really find, like, can he really walk up in front of the judge? Can he walk up in front of the jury? Somebody's going to have to take his arm this way, Joe. Okay. And they're going to traipse him up and walk, and he's going to look around. Oh, they're going to say, do you understand the charges? He's going to say, ribble Fritz. You know, remember when he said um, the U.S. can be can be the 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 this country can be summed up in one word, and then he like mumbled "Rebel Fritz, Rebel Fritz," right? So they're going to say name Rebel Fritz. No, no, sir, your actual name, uh, Rebel Fritz. You understand the charges, Rebel Fritz? Doggone it! I didn't you hear me say Rebel Fritz? What the hell's wrong with you people? Come on, Jack. I'm the guy. I'm the guy that said Rebel Fritz, right? So old President Rebel Fritz. Accurately, I'm not going to hate on the guy for not charging him, to be quite frank. There are a lot of people mad at him. Hey, how dare he not charge Joe? And I'm like, you know, old Ribble Fritz probably ain't in much of a situation where he can stand for himself. So the cat's out of the bag. But here's the thing about it. So the Biden administration's like, oh, we're pissed. How dare you? How dare he say something about Biden's memory? And I'm like, really? Really? You're going to defend Joe Biden's memory. The whole world, the guy, everybody in the world understands that old President Rebel Fritz is toast. He's done. He's had it. He is game, set, and match. It's over for this guy, right? So the reality is they embarrass themselves by trying to argue against what everybody knows. It'd be like somebody writes an a, a article, that Garland Nixon's a black dude. And I say, how dare he? Accuse me of being a black dude, but everybody knows I'm, I don't know, you know, whatever. I'm a, I don't know, Aleutian ex Eskimo. How dare he? I'm pissed. Don't you ever say I'm a black dude, right? And uh, people look at it and say, yeah, but here's a picture. Here's a mirror. Look at him. No! Bottom line is this. It wouldn't go over big, would it? People would shake their head and say, what the hell's wrong with Garland? He doesn't have any mirrors in his house. He don't, he don't know who his parents were. What's going on with this guy, right? That's Joe Biden. Everybody knows, the whole world knows that Joe Biden's pretty much brain dead. We all know that. And coming up next on Arts Express, U.S. protests against these endless wars are rising up everywhere. But what about enduring existence in the U.S. empire belly of the beast on a daily basis? Revolutionary German poet and playwright Bertolt Brecht, who fled Nazi Germany and subsequent FBI McCarthyism persecution here, sums it all up in this enduring poem to those born after. And, quote, how I passed my time that was given to me on this earth. Between the battles, I lay down to sleep among the murderers. A reading by Fight for the Sky.
This is a poem written by Bertolt Brecht, titled, To Those Born After. To the cities I came in a time of disorder that was ruled by hunger. I sheltered with people in a time of uproar and then I joined the rebellion. That's how I passed my time that was given to me on this earth. I ate my dinners between the battles. I lay down to sleep among the murderers. I didn't care much for love and for nature's beauties, I had little patience. That's how I passed my time that was given to me on this earth. The city streets all led to foul swamps in my time. My speech betrayed me to the butchers. I could do only little. But without me, those that ruled could not sleep so easily. That's what I hoped. That's how I passed my time that was given to me on this earth. Our forces were slight and small. Our goal lay in the far distance, clearly in our sights. If for me, myself, beyond my reaching, that's how I passed my time that was given to me on this earth. You who will come to the surface from the flood that's overwhelmed us and drowned us all must think when you speak of our weakness in times of darkness that you've not had to face. Days when we were used to changing countries more often than shoes through the war of the classes despairing that there was only injustice and no outrage. Even so, we realized hatred of oppression still distorts the features. Anger at injustice still makes voices raised and ugly. Oh, we who wish to lay for the foundations for peace and friendliness could never be friendly ourselves. And in the future, when no longer do human beings still treat themselves as animals, look back on us with indulgence. And now on Arts Express, Actress Virginia Madsen's body of work includes many eminent portrayals through the decades, including Ghosts of Mississippi, The Rainmaker, Polaire in Becoming Colette, Marion Davies in The Hearst and Davies Affair, and most prominently as inebriated lovers with Paul Giamatti in Sideways. Madsen, in a conversation first about her current portrayal as a damaged Midwestern mother in Lola, out now in release, written and directed by the actress who stars as her daughter, Nicola Peltz. First, a scene from the Western Crossfire, in which Mastin stars as a widow, opposite the hardened drifter played by Tom Selleck, then Virginia Madsen. I was condescending. You were. I read somewhere Beethoven used to wear his clothes till they came apart 
and fell off his body. You can read. Another surprise. Even write a word or two. Short ones. A wit. It's rare in these parts. Rare sassy women, I expect. And I suppose you prefer your women ignorant and docile? Yes, ma'am. Hello and welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay. How did you go about getting inside your character, Mona's conflicted head? And what did you figure out about her in order to portray her? Those are very good questions. First, I loved the script, Lola. I thought it was very strong and very well written. And the characters were really three-dimensional. Um, no one is a caricature. Um, second, I really liked Nicola from the moment I met her. And I felt like she knew what she was doing, you know, being her first film. And, you know, you kind of never, you got to roll the dice if you're going to, I think I've probably worked with more first-time directors than anybody. But I kind of had this feeling that I could trust her because of the way she'd written these characters. Um, with Mona, you know, she was a very hateful, abusive person, but you can't go into it like, I'm going to play hateful and abusive. Mm -hmm. Those are actions. What I needed to find out is why. Why is she like that to her son? This is a person that's very damaged, and she believes that she's doing the right thing to save her son's life. She's scared to death that he's going to grow up in sin like her daughter, which is played by Nicola. Um, so she has this kind of desperation to save him. And the way she goes about it is to, to beat him, you know, to, to, to just be awful, to beat I don't mean just physically, but she wants to beat down his spirit. And you can see in the movie that how she's rejected socially, um, there was a time when she probably really did love Lola when she was a little girl and then everything left her and her own like alcohol and drug abuse. But you, it, again, you can't just play that. You have to get to the root of it and, um, and the behavior of, of her. And so because of Nicola, you know, she, she created this really safe space on the set. Because um, even when I'm talking about it, I feel a little shaky because it was so hard for me to play that role now, to make it believable. Now, this film is described as, quote, set in 2002 Middle America. So what are your thoughts about how your character is a product emotionally, socially, of that cultural time and place and that moment in time back then? Well, I think that Mona is a person that time has passed her by. I think the, the 2000s were terrifying for her because she feels old. And she's tr still trying to wear makeup that she wore when she was 22. She's still trying to look, you know, how some women sort of get stuck in a certain, you know, when they were in their prime. And Mona's not a person who's going to evolve. She's just going to get worse. So she probably doesn't even like to write down the year because to her it should still be 1987. You know, that was a good time. I suppose she reminisces. I imagined her reminiscing about the good old days. And it is, is there anything you recognize in this film and this story personally as someone from middle America yourself? Well, I, I, it, I think there's certainly some pieces of that that I added into the character, like the look of her, the hair, mm. the gaudy clothing. You know, there's, I've known women like that, especially the women, like I said, that are stuck in a certain time period. Um, I saw some of that growing up. Not my mom. My mom's up, still evolving. And, um, you know, I had a lot of really, really strong women in my life. But there were others you would see them getting stuck. 
and sort of staying there. And did you relate to the film identifying in any way with your own abuse that you've talked about, suffered as an actress? You've described as, quote, it was everything from groping to demeaning comments to making me feel bad about myself, talking about me like I wasn't there, threatening me, threatening that if I didn't blow him, I wasn't going to work. But I still win because Bro. I'm still standing. Yeah. Well, I... I I don't laugh out of nervousness, but I laugh because I left them behind. Mm. You know, I kept moving on. I kept, I do have the ability to keep evolving. And those, those men and a couple of women, they don't matter to me. They really don't. Um, they have no place in my life. That was one of the best things about getting older is to be it like they are way in my rear view mirror. They're not even in the rear view mirror. Mm -hmm. They're down some other road. And you just get stronger when you get older. You just get smarter. And I'm able to prioritize what really matters in my life. And it's not, that taught me a lot about my own personal strength. Um, and especially, you know, I'm, I'm an artist, so I was sensitive, and things hurt when you're young mm. in a way that they can't hurt me now. So you have to work through a lot of um, painful episodes in your young life in order to move forward, and I've been able to do that. Mm. And did you see And now, now I can help other young people in my life if, if they are having similar experiences. I know how to support them. And have you done that, or did you identify any of this in the character Lola? Oh, I saw so much of, of these kind of women in girls, some of myself in Lola, um, just how alone she could feel. I, don't, I didn't live the life that Lola lives in this movie, but just how you look at yourself when you suffer abuse. Um, what you see in the mirror. And in your very prolific and eminent career, what have been some of the most memorable moments for you? I think, well, it, you know, I've been around for a while, so <laughs> it, would it, it would depend on, like, what era and how old I was. Because um, when you do brave things when you're young, you kind of don't know you're being brave. But making the choice to taking the leap of faith to be an actor and move to L.A., mm. that was not easy to do, but it was my dream. And um, I think the films that I enjoyed the most were films where we were an ensemble and it felt like family and films that became like a new discovery, even if it wasn't such a good experience, it was a like a new country I was in or new people that I met. Um, I'm an adventurer, so I have a lot of really good memories. And I mean, I suppose more recently would be Sideways for sure. Mm, yeah. One of the best experiences ever. And I think that women, I think that young women are taking charge and taking the leap. But I see that and I'm like, times have changed. Times have changed. And when Virginia Madsen looks in the mirror, what does she see? Beauty. <laughs> but it's not, it's inner strength that I have now at this age. And I don't, I'm proud to be 61. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there's things that are changing, you know what I mean? <laughs> but I learned that from my mom and my older sister. So if you don't feel that when you look in the mirror, take a breath and really look within and find it. If there's, I know you didn't ask me for advice, but <laughs> women, find it. Find yeah. the beauty because it's in there. All right. Okay, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you. Thank you. 
and next on the show, two presentations in our Arts Express Writer's Corner coming up. Went to the hardware store, bought some used paint. It was in the shape of a house. I also bought some batteries, but they weren't included. So I had to buy them again. What do batteries run on? Why is the alphabet in that order? Is it because of that song? I went to a museum where they had all the heads and arms from the statues that are in all the other museums. I had trouble going home from there because I had parked my car on a towaway zone. When I came back, the entire area was gone. I used to work for the factory where they make hydrants, but you couldn't park anywhere near the place. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. The clip you just heard is, of course, the great stand-up comedian Stephen Wright. And Wright has always been a unique figure in comedy. Only a few times in a generation are there comedians who create a completely new paradigm for stand-up. Lenny Bruce did it. Richard Pryor did it and Stephen Wright in his own way did it. Wright was to comedy what Dada was to art, an invasion of a surreal stream of consciousness with bizarre juxtapositions that undermined what their medium was even supposed to be. Now Stephen Wright has come out with a book called Harold, which is unlike any other comedian's book. Now, usually when a stand-up comes out with a book, as Seinfeld and Cosby or uh, even Chelsea Handler have done, they're just sections of their stand-up acts sorted into chapters and topics. Well, Stephen Wright's book is not that at all. It is, in fact, a novel, a very strange yet beautiful, funny, and sad story that takes place entirely inside of the loopy brain of a seven-year-old genius boy named Harold. The story happens all in one school day as Harold is sitting in his third grade class, barely listening to the drone of his teacher. Instead, his brain is invaded by hundreds of tiny birds of beautiful color that enter what he calls his rectangle, that is, his mind's entrance. Each tiny bird brings new random thoughts that can take him on flights to the moon with Carl Sagan or on a visit to his grandfather's lakeside cabin. I'll read some of it so that you can get the flavor of the book and Wright's writing. All you need to know here is that Elizabeth is the name of a seven-year-old girl in his class who Harold decides is his girlfriend, though she doesn't know it outside of his brain. A stunning young cardinal sped confidently through the rectangle and looked Harold in the eye from the back of his eye. This bird brought Harold the thought that wouldn't it be great if he had a big house and in the many different rooms he could have Elizabeth at different ages. In one room she could be three and another seven and another fifteen and another twenty-three, another thirty-five, another fifty-one, and then another eighty-five. Then he could go round to the different rooms and visit her at the different ages and have little conversations and joke around and play games, and she would know him even though he was still just seven years old. What better way to get to know a girl? Since she was seven right now, when he went to visit her in that room, it would be kind of funny because he would have just seen her in class that day. She might say to him, Harold, when you go to see me when I'm 85, tell me I said hi and ask me how I am. Okay, I will. And when he saw Elizabeth when she's 85, she might say to him, When you go see me when I'm seven, tell me that I know you can't really know, but 
being a little girl is so special, and I will always remember where you were in time as one of my favorite times. But I won't remember a lot of the details. But doesn't matter. Just enjoy it all. Please remember to have a lot of fun. And seven-year-old Elizabeth's response to this might be, did she send me any treats? Unexpectedly, a fist fight breaks out in the hallway of the house between 51-year-old Elizabeth and 23-year-old Elizabeth about birth control and gambling. The 35-year-old tries to break it up, bumps her head, and passes out in the bathroom. The three-year-old Elizabeth is standing in the doorway to her bedroom, seeing all this, and starts crying. The seven-year-old Elizabeth and 85-year-old Elizabeth are in their rooms in a deep sleep, coincidentally having the same dream about Neil Armstrong. In the dream, he reveals to his wife that he's scared of the dark. This is the second time having the dream for seven-year-old Elizabeth and the 19th time for 85-year-old Elizabeth. Harold looked at the clock that was high up on the wall to his right and it said it was 11.30. The hour and the minute hands were black and the second hand was red. An arrogant seagull with a light smell of salt bourbon glided through the rectangle and Harold imagined the meeting that the men had to discuss and decide the color of these hands. One guy didn't give a crap and agree to anything because he wanted to get home to his new wife who looked almost exactly like Lauren Bacall except she was in color. His dilemma was that he thought Lauren Bacall looked much better in black and white. But how the hell was he going to get his new wife into black and white? She would have to be on film because even the real Lauren Bacall was in color, really. But he couldn't be married to someone on film and then he started to panic because he had questioned marrying her anyway and the reason he really married her in the first place was because she looked so much like the famous actress and now he realized he'd made a huge mistake and he just felt so stupid. And what if he told her that even though they had only been married three weeks, he wanted a divorce? Her response? But why? Why? I don't understand. Because you're in color and I just can't take it anymore. I'm sorry. And that's an excerpt from Steve Wright's new novel titled Harold. You might think as you're reading this book that he can't possibly sustain this for more than 10 pages, but he does and it takes you along. The novel isn't played for laughs, though there are funny thoughts in it. On the other hand, it would take someone like Stephen Wright, the king of non sequiturs and brain lapses, to write a book so relentlessly strange. You know, I've long been struck how childhood is full of strangeness. Certainly my own childhood was, and I remember watching the strangeness of my schoolmates every day. The boys who ate pencil erasers, the girls who guarded their crayon boxes of 128 colors, the biters, the vomiters, the blinkers, the criers, the snorters. When I grew up, I wondered, where had everyone gone? Everyone seemed the same in the adult world. Anything special was beat out of them. The crazy edges and angles filed down, all smoothed out, as if those strange personalities and imaginations had never existed. That's what Stephen Wright's book triggered in me. If any of what I've just said resonates for you, then this is the book for you. There have been other books where the protagonist is a differently brained child, 
like the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime by Mark Haddon. But Wright's novel is more uncompromising, and the reader is trapped with Harold in his brain, testing out the limits of imagination's power to vanquish, reshape, and escape from reality. I've been talking about the new novel by Stephen Wright, Harold. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. Last time I went camping, I accidentally borrowed a circus tent. I didn't know until I got there and I set it up. People complaining because they couldn't see the lake. My friend George is a radio announcer, and when he walks under a bridge, you can't hear him talk. Hi, this is the UK desk for Arts Express, and my name is Brett Gregory. Born in Oregon in 1938, the poet and short story writer Raymond Carver began writing short stories seriously from the age of 20 after taking a creative writing course at California State University and his literary reputation was established in 1976 with the collection entitled Will You Please Be Quiet, Please? In his short stories, Carver chronicles the everyday lives and problems of the working poor in the Pacific Northwest. His blue-collar characters are crushed by broken marriages, financial problems and failed careers, but they are often unable to understand or even articulate their own anguish. One of these stories, which I'll be narrating this evening, is called fat. I am sitting over coffee and cigarettes at my friend Rita's and I am telling her about it. Here is what I tell her. It is late of a slow Wednesday when Herb seats the fat man at my station. This fat man is the fattest person I have ever seen, though is neat appearing and well dressed enough. Everything about him is big but it is the fingers I remember best. When I stop at the table near his to see to the old couple, I first noticed the fingers. They looked three times the size of a normal person's fingers. Long, thick, creamy fingers. I see to my other tables a party of four businessmen, very demanding. Another party of four, three men and a woman, and this old couple. Leander has poured the fat man's water, and I give the fat man plenty of time to make up his mind before going over. Good evening, I say. May I serve you, I say. Rita, he was big. I mean big. Good evening, he says. Hello? Yes, he says. I think we're ready to order now, he says. He has this way of speaking. Strange, don't you know? And he makes a little puffing sound every so often. I think we will begin with a Caesar salad, he says. And then a bowl of soup with some extra bread and butter, if you please. The lamb chops, I believe, he says. And baked potato with sour cream. We'll see about dessert later. Thank you very much, he says, and hands me the menu. God, Rita, but those were fingers. I hurry away to the kitchen and turn in the order to Rudy, who takes it with a face. You know, Rudy. Rudy is that way when he works. As I come out of the kitchen, Margot, I've told you about Margot, the one who chases Rudy. Margot says to me, who's your fat friend? He's really a fatty. Now, that's part of it. I think that is really part of it. I make the Caesar salad there at his table, him watching my every move, meanwhile buttering pieces of bread and laying them off to one side, all the time making this puffing noise. Anyway, I'm so keyed up or something, I knock over his glass of water. I'm so sorry, I say. It always happens when you get into a hurry. I'm very sorry, I say. Are you all right, I say. I'll get the boy to clean up right away, I say. It's nothing, he says. It's all right, he says and he puffs. Don't worry about it. We don't mind, he says. He smiles and waves as I go off to get Leander, and when I come back to serve the salad, I see the fat man has eaten all his bread and butter. A little later, when I bring him more bread, he has finished his salad. You know the size of those Caesar salads? You're very kind, he says. This bread is marvellous, he says. Thank you, I say. Well, it is very good, he says, and we mean that. We don't often enjoy bread like this, he says. Where are you from, I ask him. I don't believe I've seen you before, I say. He's not the kind of person you'd forget, Rita puts in with a snicker. Denver, he says. 
I don't say anything more on the subject, though I am curious. Your suit will be along in a few minutes, sir, I say, and I go off to put the finishing touches to my party of four businessmen, very demanding. When I serve his soup, I see the bread has disappeared again. He's just putting the last piece of bread into his mouth. Believe me, he says, we don't eat like this all the time, he says, and puffs. You'll have to excuse us, he says. Don't think a thing about it, please, I say. I like to see a man eat and enjoy himself, I say. I don't know, he says. I guess that's what you'd call it, and puffs. He arranges the napkin, then he picks up his spoon. God, he's fat, says Leander. He can't help it, I say, so shut up. I put down another basket of bread and more butter. How was the soup, I say? Thank you. Good, he says. Very good, he says. He wipes his lips and dabs his chin. Do you think it's warm in here, or is it just me, he says. No, it is warm in here, I say. Maybe we'll take off our coats, he says. Go right ahead, I say. A person has to be comfortable, I say. That's true, he says. That is very, very true, he says. But I see a little later that he's still wearing his coat. My large parties are gone now, and also the old couple. The place is emptying out. By the time I serve the fat man his chops and baked potato, along with more bread and butter, he is the only one left. I drop lots of sour cream onto his potato. I sprinkle bacon and chives over his sour cream. I bring him more bread and butter. Is everything all right, I say. Fine, he says, and he puffs. Excellent, thank you, he says, and puffs again. Enjoy your dinner, I say. I raise the lid of his sugar bowl and look in. He nods and keeps looking at me until I move away. I know now I was after something, but I don't know what. How is old tub of guts doing? He's going to run your legs off, says Harriet. You know, Harriet. For dessert, I say to the fat man, there is the green lantern special, which is a pudding cake with sauce, or there is cheesecake, or vanilla ice cream, or pineapple sherbet. We're not making you late, are we? He says, puffing and looking concerned. Not at all, I say. Of course not, I say. Take your time, I say. I'll bring you more coffee while you make up your mind. We'll be honest with you, he says, and he moves in the seat. We would like the special, but we may have a dish of vanilla ice cream as well, with just a drop of chocolate syrup, if you please. We told you we were hungry, he says. I go off to the kitchen to see after his dessert myself, and Rudy says, Harriet says you got a fat man from the circus out there. That true? Rudy has his apron and hat off now, if you see what I mean. Rudy, he is fat, I say, but that is not the whole story. Rudy just laughs. Sounds to me like she's sweet on fat stuff, he says. Better watch out, Rudy, says Joanne, who just that minute comes into the kitchen. I'm getting jealous, Rudy says to Joanne. I put the special in front of the fat man and a big bowl of vanilla ice cream with chocolate syrup to the side. Thank you, he says. You are very welcome, I say, and a feeling comes over me. Believe it or not, he says, we have not always eaten like this. Me, I eat and I eat and I can't gain, I say. I'd like to gain, I say. No, he says, if we had our choice, no, but there is no choice. Then he picks up his spoon and eats. What else, Rita says, lighting one of my cigarettes and pulling her chair closer to the table. This story is getting interesting now, Rita says. That's it, nothing else. He eats his desserts and then he leaves and then we go home, Rudy and me. Some fatty, Rudy says, stretching like he does when he's tired. Then he just laughs and goes back to watching the TV. I put the water on to boil for tea and take a shower. I put my hand on my middle and wonder what would happen if I had children and one of them turned out to look like that, so fat. I pour the water in the pots, arrange the cups, the sugar bowl, carton of half and half and take the tray in to Rudy. As if he's been thinking about it, Rudy says, I knew a fat guy once, a couple of fat guys, really fat guys when I was a kid. They were tubbies, my God. I don't remember their names. Fat, that's the only name this one kid had. We called him Fat, the kid who lived next door to me. He was a neighbour. The other kid came along later. His name was Wobbly. Everybody called him Wobbly, except the teachers. Wobbly and fat. Wish I had their pictures, Rudy says. I can't think of anything to say, so we drink our tea and pretty soon I get up to go to bed. Rudy gets up too, turns off the TV 
locks the front door and begins his unbuttoning. I get into bed and move clear over to the edge and lie there on my stomach. But right away, as soon as he turns off the light and gets into bed, Rudy begins. I turn on my back and relax some, though it is against my will. But here is the thing. When he gets on me, I suddenly feel I am fat. I feel I am terrifically fat. So fat that Rudy is a tiny thing and hardly there at all. That's a funny story, Rita says, but I can see she doesn't know what to make of it. I feel depressed, but I won't go into it with her. I've already told her too much. She sits there waiting, her dainty fingers poking her hair. Waiting for what? I'd like to know. It is August. My life is going to change. I feel it. This is the UK desk for Arts Express and Brett Gregory. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.